This past week, we reviewed um, a few different things. We, we moved quite quickly, although I think it was quickly, um, through verses 1 through 12. Um, it kind of ended on verse 12, but I wanted us to, just to do a little bit of review um, for any of us that may have missed this past week. We see Solomon, after all of chapter 1, walking through his own wisdom and evaluation. He's continued to talk about everything under the sun, and what is it that he has concluded? He said, I have seen everything that there is that can be done under the sun. Everything that takes place here on this earth, everything done apart from God, again, keeping in mind our context here, he is assuming in all of these things, he has removed God, the reality of God, from this equation as he interacts in chapter 1. He's examining everything done under the sun, and what was his conclusion all throughout all of chapter 1? vanity. It's futile. It's, it's meaningless. It's something that is fleeting. It does not truly have lasting qualities. And in chapter 1, he walks through in all of these different ways of explaining the, monoton the monotony of life, how everything is routine. The sun rises and it sets. Um, the water comes and it goes back and it returns again. How the wind always blows. All of these things stay the same. And he ends with the conclusion that all of it then is meaningless. And then in chapter 2, he enters into a different um, approach to things. He said, I've sat and I have observed all that there is to observe, and I've concluded everything here is meaningless. So now I'm going to try a new observation where I'm no longer just going to sit back and watch. I'm going to now engage. I'm going to start to involve myself in seeking after all of these different pleasures, whether physical. He, he accrues um, so many great things in verses Four on the way down, right? He says, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I planted me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. And then we see him making pools of water and having servants and maidens. He, he, he goes through all of these things that he has made for himself, the, these artistic things where he can now find great pleasure in. And what was his conclusion after building the most beautiful things? of having servants, of having um, so many different pleasures, what was his conclusion at the end throughout verse 11? What did he conclude? It's all vanity, right? It's all vanity again and vexation of spirit. The wisest man that ever lived comes to the conclusion of, I've sought all the pleasures the world has to offer, and I'm vexed by it. My, my spirit is vexed. I'm not satisfied. I'm not fulfilled in these things. Last week we see that these godless pleasures lead to emptiness. And we're going to continue as he, he again returns back to these things. And at the ending of, of where we were this past week, how these godless relationships led him to be bitter. This morning, we're going to see that godless knowledge leads us to despair. So let's go ahead and, and see our, our text of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath already been done? Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. 
seeing that which is which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you uh, this morning, and we, we humbly come before you now in prayer to ask that what we are not, that you would make us. We ask this morning that as we study out your word and as we wrestle with the truth as is made clear in Ecclesiastes, as we see the author struggling and being vexed in spirit of claiming so many things are vanity, I do pray that as we continue throughout this morning and looking at these things verse by verse and drawing these elements out, I ask that we would continue to keep in mind our context, that all that he has claimed is doing so apart from you. But God, we praise you that that we know the reality of the situation, that we know something far, far greater, and we understand the incredible meaning that our lives do have. And ultimately, to bring honor and glory to you in all that we do. Lord, I ask that you would be glorified this morning and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we saw last week, and as we're going to continue this morning, that these pleasures of the flesh did not satisfy Solomon. And as I'm going to keep coming back to, because Ecclesiastes is a very honest, very open look at the human soul and condition as we see Solomon wrestling through so many of these different things. He's working these things out. You can almost see him working it out as he writes it. He's drawing conclusions. And those of you that have read past where we are so far, we understand that his conclusion is not all is vanity and vexation of spirit. This is not ultimately where he draws his final conclusion. But here in these first two chapters, he continues to struggle and to wrestle with all of these things that he sees under the sun. So rather, now he's pursued the flesh and it didn't satisfy him. Now he turns yet again to contrast wisdom with folly. If you remember back in chapter 1, he had said that if wisdom ends in sorrow, and it does, so now he's going to perhaps start to indulge himself. He's going to now begin to ask the question, why then pursue wisdom? How many of you like to ask the question, why? Because it's not always just enough for us to know what is something. We hear this is and we fill in the blank, but we often like to know why. I can tell you that my car works, but here's the thing. Men, don't judge me. I can't exactly tell you why. I couldn't put an engine together. can't do anything like that. But I just know that it does work. And that's something I haven't really uh, thought to ask the question of why. I just trust it. And I trust those of you that know how to do these things. But this is such a question that my kids constantly are asking. We tell them to do something or ask them something, and the first response, especially from either Benji or Maddie, is, why? And it's usually asked with that tone. It's not a, Dad, please encourage me. Please tell me why it is that this is so. Where he really is seeking to understand, it's, why? Because I told you to, Benji. Please just listen. Right? We often come with this insatiable desire to ask the question of why. And so here as Solomon goes through, he's going to start to ask this question, why? Why wisdom? What is there to be gained from growing in wisdom? Contrasting this with foolishness. And I'd like to encourage all of us that we ask this question more and more. Why? 
hey, have you truly asked why when certain things come across uh, your life? When, when you've seen something or you have a conversation about the Bible, do you study, do you examine, do you seek after the things that are true and seek to understand why something is true? Rather than just say, I trust whoever it is that's talking. Because that's often led us down many dangerous paths. But here, opening up in verse 12, he says, I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath already be done? We see this in chapter 1, verse 13, as well as in 17. He's returning back to something that he has already done before. How many of you, when you lose something, you immediately go back to where it should be, right? Okay, I have the exact same place where I always put my keys. Every time I come home, take them out of my pocket, I place them right on the counter. It's my little corner. I know exactly where my keys are supposed to be. So when, I, when I'm looking for them and they're not there, I start to get concerned because they're not where they ought to be. So you go all the way around the house. How, real quick, how many of you lose your keys constantly? Looking for my wife. Bernie's hand would be up as well. Constantly losing your keys. Our kids take them all the time. Okay? But you go back to where it should be. When it's not there, you go all the way around the house trying to find these things. After you search for 10, 15 minutes, what do you do? You go back to where they should be, and you return yet again to this, the place where they should have been in the first place, knowing good and well you've already checked it, and it's not there. My keys should be here, and after searching everywhere else in the house, my conclusion is they're probably back where they should be. But they're not. That's ridiculous. Right? Here Solomon has already observed wisdom. He sought wisdom. He's done all of these things. And he's engaged in everything else. And now he's circling all the way back to where he was in chapter 1. He talks about this wisdom that is under the sun here now because, again, he's looking purely under the sun. I turn myself to behold wisdom. If God has been removed from the wisdom that we are seeking, what are we going to be left with? Is there truly any wisdom apart from God? There cannot be. There's a fundamental distinction where there cannot be. He's simply speaking now of the good, moral, practical advice. The kind that people so often seek in, in watching Dr. Phil or in Oprah or in all of these different fluffy things where it's good and it's practical and it's light and it feels good, but it's all an encouragement simply for oneself. The preacher here is telling us that after pursuing pleasure, he's reconsidering claims of wisdom. He says, what can man do that cometh after the king? It's a variation here to there's nothing new under the sun. And again, he was the king. He's essentially saying, if I couldn't figure it out, you can't figure it out either. Now again, do you, have you noticed as we've studied through Ecclesiastes, the great pride on the part of Solomon here? The whole way through, he keeps saying, but yet I retained my wisdom. My wisdom never left me. I kept it this whole way. But yet he fails in all of these, two these first two chapters to actually apply that wisdom. So here he wrestles through it saying, What can man do that comes after the king? Only that which has already been done. There's nothing new under the sun. And notice now in verse 13, if you are looking for a positive point throughout all these two chapters, you're going to get it right here in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. Until now, everything for him has been vanity, hasn't it? It's all been meaningless. It's all been 
bleeding. It's all been futile. It's all been completely meaningless. But here he is saying it is more gain and wisdom than is folly, and that light is better than darkness. And while he's already said that wisdom can increase sorrow, with all things being equal, it's still better to have wisdom than to remain a fool. And I think we can see this, and I think all of us would say, yeah, that does sound better. We don't want to be a fool. None of us are setting out on a a single-minded pursuit to be called a fool, correct? Anyone here? Okay. Got me concerned. But all things being equal, having wisdom is better than the alternative. And again, we see this contrast of light compared to darkness. Some of us who have lived in the same house maybe for 5, 10, 15, 30, some of you maybe even 50 years, you know where everything is in your house. You can have, it can be a little bit dark, not much light, but you know exactly where everything is. And those of you that are smiling are like, yeah, because I'm not changing anything. You know where the, these things are in your home, largely. But, and though you may have traveled the same path for 30 years, Many of us have driven up and down Midland, been on Grand, whatever the case is. Now imagine walking into your home this, this morning. After we leave here, you get home, complete darkness. Not a flicker, not a little dimly lit room, nothing. Absolute darkness. How many of you are going to safely get all the way throughout the house without running into anything? Some of you are like, I'm kind of willing to try this. So I'm going to encourage you, if you think you can, go for it. Okay, have somebody with you in case it doesn't. Light is so much preferred to darkness. We think that we can walk through darkness because, hey, I'm familiar with with this. I understand where these things are. Even when we think we know where everything is, turn the lights off. I have been in this building so many days in the last number of years, right? I'd still probably run into a pillar. I'd probably still clip my shoulder on a door frame. I'm not going to perfectly be able to navigate each and every area of this building in the darkness. We require light. We need light to get to where we're going to go. I remember when I was a kid, it's one of the first memories I have of Kids Club. I was seven or eight years old, and the, the lesson was that we were to blindfold ourselves, and set up in the room was a series of obstacles, chairs, tables, all sorts of different things, all over in this large room, sort of like this. The goal was for me to get from one end all the way to the other without running into anything but I'm blindfolded. How am I supposed to do this? So first I tried it all on my own. My shins hurt quite a bit, had a lot of pain. It was very, very difficult. And I think if we were to try that now, if we were to pick someone from here this morning, scatter chairs all over the place, create these obstacles and say, okay, walk from this end to that end, but don't touch anything. Could it be done? Probably not. But after having struggled with that, I remember that the next time to go through it, I said, okay, I kind of know where the obstacles are. The second time now, though still in darkness, I was given a person in the room with a voice who would direct me on where to go. But the problem is there was opposing voices as well. I had to pick out one single voice in a crowded room of people yelling, because again, we're seven or eight years old. Of course we're going to be loud, right? To get from one end to the other. How do you think I figured out which voice to listen to? Okay, because some, we could say the loudest, but here's the problem. A lot of people that aren't leading you in the right way are going to lie to you and do so pretty loudly. 
I had to learn it. I had to learn what that actual voice was where running into something from a person telling me to turn left, which was often my brother, and tripping over a piano bench kind of made me think, okay, don't listen to this person. We had to learn these responses. And then figuring out the actual voice who was leading me in a proper way, actually allowing me to continue on and to finally make it through this path. But in the same way here as he walks through, we, we, we see this great contrast here of light and of darkness. And in the same way, a foolish person, the person without a knowledge of God, is stumbling through life. They're, they're remaining in the darkness and they cannot continue on. And in verse 14, he continues this illustration, The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Because the value of wisdom isn't just that it gives us light, it enables us to actually see. We're actually now, because of wisdom, actually able to see, and we understand how it is that we are to live. There's a useful perception here of life. And understand this, this reference that he's making here, that the same fate falls upon both the wise man and the fool. As he says at the end of verse 14, I myself perceived also that one event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this is also vanity. What is it that he's saying is happening to everybody? Everybody is ultimately going to die someday. Whether you're wise or whether you're foolish, everyone is going to die at some point. It is an absolute reality, an absolute truth that whether wise or foolish, we are all going to die. Because as we know, death is not a respecter of persons. Death does not look around and say, okay, you but not you, you're never going to die. Death is not prejudice in this way. There was a man named Greg Easterbrook who wrote a book called The Progress Paradox. In here, he categorizes how the lives of Americans are greatly improving in many, many ways in material terms, but yet his conclusion was that we never get any happier. He does all of this research where he, he gets not only just surveys, but he goes through all these different metrics and says, look, Americans, the quality of their life in material terms continues to grow exponentially. It continues to increase. Comforts continue to grow, but yet we've found that nobody is actually any happier. For those of you that have lived a lot longer than me, which is many of you, the comforts of America are incredible. Some of you know the stories of your parents or your grandparents who lived through the Depression, and they talk about how times were hard, but whenever I've heard those stories, they're not sitting there in great despair telling me about how miserable everything was. They say, yeah, we barely had a little bit of bread. We didn't have so many things. We pretty much had nothing. But you know what we had? We were together, and we got through, and we made it, and it was okay. They actually talk about those times as hard, but still happy. And so many of us have experienced a very similar thing. I mentioned last week about when Brittany and I first get married and we're in this tiny, small little house and all these different things and how we had far less than we currently would have, but yet we are, we are still incredibly happy. You look so fondly upon those times. I would miss the kids, obviously. But you look very fondly upon these things of the past because it doesn't actually matter whether we have a lot or very little. 
Our comfort continues to increase, but yet happiness does not increase. With all of these athletics, salaries, and popularity of sports are so much greater than they've ever been. But yet more and more professional athletes continue to be more and more depressed. They're more anxious than they've ever been. There's greater depression and sadness and despair than there has ever been. They're coming out publicly and saying these things. The big macho football, basketball players are all openly talking about their depression. And the common response is, well, pay, million, pay me millions of dollars to play a game and I'd be happy. When they're giving you the exact testimony to, it's not about the money, it's not about popularity. They're completely left empty. And so as he writes through this book, he concludes at a certain point, he wonders that if the problem might have something to do with death. That though our, our life is improving, that material comforts may be improving, there's a baseline anxiety that everybody has, which is the fear of death. That no matter how much money you have or how little you have, everybody is going to die someday. There's a baseline anxiety with this. Solomon here, as he wrestles through it, now we're seeing him struggling with the reality of his mortality, where he is saying, I've sought after wisdom, contrasted that with being a fool, but you know what I've concluded? Both the wise man and the fool are ultimately going to die someday. So his conclusion, while not uh, encouraged, is to say, then what's the point of being wise then? What's the point of knowledge if it's only going to increase sorrow? If I'm going to die the same as the fool, why then would I ever pursue any wisdom? He's confronted with his mortality, which for many of us only happens when we've actually experienced it in some way. Think about when you were largely a teenager. It's not anything that you ever consider when you're young, right? This is why many of the things that we talk about, that we did, that were bad choices, things that I mentioned in the Sunday school, which if you missed it, I'm not recounting, because you guys judged me so harshly for it and made fun of me. Um, but so many things that we do when we're younger, we would never do when we're older. But when we're younger, we feel this great sense of immortality where nothing could ever happen to us. The idea of a car accident for a kid who just now got his license, where you now need to be driving carefully, we say, I just started driving. You know, no way it's going to happen to me. This, I, this is how I thought. But when you're confronted with mortality, everything changes. It's the soldier who goes into a battle always assuming, I'm going to go and there will be deaths, but it will not be mine. It will always be somebody else. And then the first time that someone that you're in battle with is killed, you realize, that could have been me. And those of you that have served, those of you that know those who have, you understand what this is like to be able to say, that could have been me in so many circumstances. How many of us here would be able to say, a situation and go, that could have been me. Almost every single one of us. And so his conclusion was that there must be something else. Now, as he writes, he doesn't actually have an answer for these problems. He simply says, there's a problem. But earthly wisdom doesn't have a way to fix it. French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said this, he said, life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. His conclusion is that there is nothing eternal, that there is nothing after death. And so once you realize this fact that there's nothing after we die, then life has no meaning. Do you see the despair in these words of so many men that I've, I've listed things that they have said, of different writings that they have, of so many people going through all of these things 
and you notice the great despair of those who say, there's no God. There's nothing after we die. Death is simply the end of everything. Verse 16, he continues saying that there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. Saying that the wise man is going to die just as the fool. There is no remembrance of either the wise person of the fool. He's mentioned things very similar in the first chapter as well. Now he's saying that death has the power to erase the very memory of our existence. Saying that it's all meaningless, no one's going to remember us anyways. Do you guys find any of this troubling? These kind of statements, this philosophy, this viewpoint of saying everything is completely meaningless here under the sun? And so our natural instinct to, to overcome this is to do so by achievement, right? We say, life doesn't mean anything. Well, I'm going to give meaning to it by the way that I achieve things. I'm going to accomplish things. I'm going to set out on these pursuits, and I'm going to create a meaning to my life. And so we often do it by achievement. How many of you are familiar with who Woody Allen is? Okay, famous filmmaker. Here's what he said. He said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. Right. Silly, right? But think about how often have we heard their memory or whatever it is will live on through their work. Here's a person whose work is going to live longer than he is, and he is saying, I'm not satisfied with that. Because even though he's accomplished so many things, he says, it's not enough. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not satisfied. It doesn't matter what I do. I still have this great fear and anxiety of dying. And I don't want to die. There's no remembrance of former things. Alexander the Great, who many of you are familiar with, learned this lesson in a very dramatic way from one of his friends, Diogenes, who was a philosopher. Alexander finds his friend standing out there alone in a field, looking intently at a pile of bones. Place yourself here for a minute. You're looking at your friend who's off to the side, standing alone in a field, which I think we all agree is just odd to begin with. Okay? Just standing alone in a field, that would freak me out. But here he is. He comes upon him, staring intently at just this pile of bones. And he comes along and he says, what is it that you're looking at? And Diogenes replied, and he said, I am searching for the bones of your father, Philip. Again, this is Alexander the Great, right? Tons of wealth. Everything imaginable as well. I'm trying to look for the bones of your father, Philip, but I cannot distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. Do you see the connection here? It doesn't matter whether you are king. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what you've built. Your bones will look just the same as the person who had absolutely nothing. When you leave this earth, you will be leaving behind. There will be that body. There will be the bones. No one is going to come along and see bones and go, this must have been a great, mighty, triumphant king. We always say it doesn't matter what you have. We're not taking our money with us when we die, right? And so we say it's not just about money. It's not about material comforts. We need to change our focus, but yet so much of our day is consumed by building up these temporal things, building up these earthly things, that that's often 
our focus. And here he says, I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. Verse 17, we continue to see his despair. Therefore, I hated life. After all that he has gone through, he's examined everything that is under the sun. He's looked upon it, said that it's meaningless. He's, He's chased after physical pleasures, physical enjoyments in all these different ways and said, that too didn't seem to satisfy. Let me circle back to observing these things. His observation yet again leads him to say, there is not anything here that is fulfilling to me. Therefore, I hated life. Do you yet again see the despair? Notice he didn't just say he doesn't like his own life. He's the very existence of humanity. Because this despair is the sad reality of a life without God, where we look and we say, why would I go to work if all I'm going to do is die at the end of the day? Why then work? If all that's going to happen, if I'm a wise person, is I'm going to die just as the fool, why pursue wisdom and knowledge? If this is all that there is going to be, if at the end of the day I truly just die, and that is the absolute end, if there is nothing further, if there is no eternity, the only conclusion, and we've seen this throughout all of human history, is despair. Because you say, it's meaningless. I'm working so hard after things of no value. Because we're confronted with our own mortality and we say, there isn't lasting meaning in this. Voltaire famously said, I hate life, yet I am afraid to die. Could you imagine a worse place to find yourself? I hate being alive, but I'm so terrified of dying. Contrast that with what Paul said in Philippians of how he's caught between these two places where he says, it's, I want to be in heaven with God. I want to be there. But it's best that I remain here with you for your sake. But he didn't hate being here. He understood there was a purpose in this time for the Christian. And he absolutely understood that there's an incredible meaning in his life. But imagine finding yourself in such a place where we say, I hate life, but I am so afraid to die. There's nothing but despair. A complete trapping of despair. Have you noticed how all of these people that we're referencing, all of their conclusions are, this this understanding of how they're pretty unhappy, right? Incredibly unfulfilled. They find no meaning to anything that they're doing. They've spent their entire life examining all that there is in the world and said, because they've completely blocked God out of the equation. They say, fundamentally at the beginning, God cannot exist. Eternity cannot exist. Therefore, their conclusion can only lead them to where it has for every person throughout all of history. It's a fatalistic mindset to say, I'm just going to die. And that's all that there is. And if that is the case, let's remember where we were last week. Then why not just pursue pleasures? Why not just consume and enjoy as much as we can in this time? Because ultimately, if I'm not held accountable for anything, why then should we live in a moral, ethical way? What is to stop anyone here from going and robbing from anybody else in the room? Because if there is no eternity, if there is nothing past this time, it's just pursue pleasure, enjoy yourself, why not? Because at the end of the day, we all understand that there is something greater, that there is something more. And Romans 1 tells us that everybody has a knowledge of God, that he's revealed himself through his creation, 
His invisible attributes and his power has been revealed, but we know the truth and we suppress it. Think about your own life. Have you, did you suppress the truth of God at some point? Did you know, I know that there's a God, but I, I don't want to believe it. I want to ignore it. I'm going to keep pushing this off, hoping it's not the case. Because if that is true, that there is a God, then I'm in trouble. Here are these conclusions consistently, just as Solomon here has been leading himself to. It gets to the point, it's so bad that even the one who had everything imaginable in a temporal, physical, material sense concludes in verse 17, therefore I hated life. This despair is the reality of a life that is without God. But do you remember the contrast that he made in previous verses of wisdom and of folly, of light and of darkness? He's dwelling upon only one half of that, isn't he? Because he's continued to remove this idea of God and he's only focusing on the darkness. And let's be honest, if we were to think about our own lives, we often can just dwell upon the things that are dark in our life. Where we don't wake up praising God for all the great things that he's given to us. We don't wake up naturally gracious and thankful. We have to remind ourselves to be. Because our natural instinct is to grumble, to moan, and to complain. I woke up this morning. It was cold, wet, rainy. We were going to the pancake breakfast. I was excited for the strawberry pancakes, naturally. But then I was upset because I said, it's cold. I can't enjoy these pancakes. I still kind of did. I wanted to enjoy them more. But it wasn't sunny. But how ridiculous is it for me to sit back and say, you know, God, you're really wonderful and you're so gracious and so giving, but I really have this one issue. You didn't bring any sun this morning, and it really started my day off pretty poorly. How ridiculous that would be in light of everything that he has done to dwell upon something like that. I'm sure many of us have plans for the rest of today to be outside. We wanted to do different things. Guess what? It may not happen. That's okay. But I want us to see this contrast, and, and then we'll close, especially in light of where we're now moving to here at the close of the service. As we come to the Lord's table and remember what Christ has done, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Because again, we see so much of this darkness, so much of this despair throughout Ecclesiastes in these first two chapters, that we have to constantly remind ourselves, that's not all that there is. He's focusing on things under the sun, the things that are apart from God, and he is recognizing, rightfully so, if there is no God, then everything is meaningless. But all of Scripture testifies to what we know to be true. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Do we see that because Jesus himself is alive, the grave is not the end? This is why it's so important that as Christians we stress the resurrection, that we emphasize the fact that we do not serve a God who is dead. This idea that, yeah, God created things, he set things in motion, and now he's pulled back and just said, okay, have at it, humans. 
that God is intimately involved in his creation, that he desires relationship, that he continues to reveal himself through Scripture and so fully in the person of Christ and what it is that he did, that because Jesus is alive, the grave is not the end for us. That those who have believed upon Christ, we do not conclude all is vanity, all is meaningless. And as we read in the Sunday school this morning, Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What fear does the Christian have of death? None. There is nothing to fear because as it says, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall he also appear with him in glory. What is the result of our death for the Christian? We appear with him in glory. We see him as he is where he has been raised up, seated in the heavenly places, seated at the right hand of God. Contrast that with what Solomon's depicting here, with what so many of what we would say so-called wise men have said throughout all of time. We're all going to die. It's meaningless. There's no reason for anything. But we have to know what is true. We have to know all that Christ has done. Here in Colossians chapter 3, he is saying, If you have been risen with Christ, then seek those things that are above, where Christ is sitting on the right hand of God. Seek after the heavenly things. Stop focusing on everything under the sun. Because that's often where our eyes tend to drift, right? Our eyes are supposed to be set forth, looking ahead and looking upwards, and yet we're so narrowly focused on our own little framework as if this is all that there is while testifying, but there is a heaven. The song that the Begley sang for special music of talking about these incredible things to come. Do we live as if those are realities? Or do we live as if they're theoretical? Here, as we see in Colossians, to set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Because the incredible reality is, life isn't meaningless. That there is something far, far past just the things of this earth. And all of Scripture tells us what exactly that that thing is. And that is to bring glory to God in all that we do. The very simple fact the very beautiful, simple, yet very complex truth that Christ himself came and dwelt among men, that God in his love and his grace and his mercy sent forth his Son to come to this earth to live the perfect life that we could never have lived. Because apart from the things of God, apart from the Spirit of God, we are left wandering in the darkness in our house. But here's the difference. You don't even know where things are situated. Imagine any of you walking into a person's house for the first time. Lights are completely off. How are you going to make it through the house? You are wholly incapable of doing so. And here's the thing. Our sinful condition loves the darkness, right? This is why many of the things that we do that we know are wrong, that we know are sinful, we love to do it in the dark. We do it when we're alone, or we do it when we're sad, or we're hungry, or we're tired. But the beauty of the gospel is that all of these things are brought forth into the light and that even though we have sinned, Christ himself has taken away our sin and has given us his perfect righteousness and obedience so that we look upon the very face of God. We see him as he is because he sees us as he sees Christ. In no way could we have ever lived a perfect life. In no way could we have ever just said, you know, God, I did, I did a lot of really good things. I've worked very hard to please you. I've worked very hard to make you so proud of all that I have done. Because Scripture tells us that apart from the work of God, 
We cannot please him. We are incapable of doing so. And it also tells us that we don't even want to. We're not seeking after God. But the beauty of the gospel is that while we were not seeking after him, Christ came to seek and to save the lost, that he came to this earth, fulfilling and accomplishing what he set forth from the very beginning in the covenant at the very beginning of creation of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and everything that we see in Scripture is all the outworking of these things. Are you thankful this morning that when you read Solomon's words, you don't sit back and agree with him and say, yeah, everything is meaningless. But maybe you sit back and say, but I know something far different. I know who God is. Why do I believe in God? Because I know him. Because I know what he has done to me. Not because I can argue all the scientific points, but because I know him and he knows me. I don't simply profess faith, but I, I possess it. But even more beautiful is the very fact that he possesses me. Have you thought of that? We are hidden in Christ. We are positionally in Christ. It's great for us to say that I, I possess God and I believe in God and I have him. But how much more beautiful is it for you to say, he's holding me. He possesses me. That is a truly beautiful and remarkable thing. Which is why as we read through these words, we see this reality as he depicts it under the sun. And we say, that's not it. There's something far, far greater than just this world. And that is the person and the work of Christ and the things of God. And so this morning as we now move uh, to, to come to the Lord's table and to celebrate exactly what it is that that work accomplished on the cross, we're going to remember the work of Christ, we're going to remember his coming and living a perfect life and remembering and reflecting upon these things, the way that he accomplished salvation for us. So I'd like to invite the men to come as we prepare to um, come to the Lord's table.